0: Why do people follow social norms? Like why do people engage in social norms? Why really simple things like why don't you right now why are we you know we're following social rules we're we're um, engaging in a conversation in a way that is pretty predictable that our brains can predict even for someone that you just meet for the first time, there are certain things that are expected or expectable because we're all following certain set of rules. Why do we follow those rules? We follow those rules because if my behavior is predictable to you, then your behavior will be predictable to me. And the brain likes predictable things because they're less expensive. Remember, if your brain can't predict, your amygdala and, and a whole system in your brain is going to... Um, attempt to learn. And that is one of the most expensive things your brain can do. One thing to do is to remember that you are the architect of your experience and you can curate your life. you It's very hard to go back in time and change your past, but you can go forward in time and change your future. If you cultivate different experiences for yourself now, a, a diversity of experiences now, That makes you more flexible and resilient in the future.
1: Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights.
2: This week's guest is one of my favorite scientists uh, on the planet, and and, and I'm not alone, she's actually one of the top 100 most cited or referenced academics in her field, Lisa Feldman Barrett, who holds dual appointments at Harvard Medical School and Northeastern University. Her most recent book was How Emotions Are Made, it came out a few years ago, and it really kind of turned the field of neuropsychology upside down. Uh, There had been a prevailing story that we have a certain number of emotions. They cue to our emotional facial expressions, et cetera, et cetera. And we're kind of a little bit like complicated computers. And Lisa actually, she's one of the more contrarian scientists I know, which is awesome because every time I'm like, well, what does dopamine do? And she's like, ah, it's not what you think it is. What does cortisol do? She's like, no, you've got it all wrong. So she, in this talk in particular, undoes pretty much everything you think you've heard from the sort of Malcolm Gladwell, Ted talk land of pop science, and actually replaces it with things that are much subtler, much deeper and more interesting. It really gives us a sense of how our interoception or what's happening at the level of our viscera, our guts, our heart, our our actual pulsing body is really all about prediction and that emotions come later, as does the neurochemistry of the dopamine and the cortisol. It's all trying to figure out what's about to happen, and then what is my neurophysiological response that best equips me for that? And what's really neat about that is that could be endlessly geeky, (laughs) and and, and it can be. Um, But on the other hand, Lisa takes the position that this is actually profoundly empowering because she, she, she calls it the theory of constructed emotion, which basically means we can have our emotions our emotions don't have to have us. And when, you know, coming out of a place where talk therapy and, and, um, and SSRIs and, you know, and, and a culture of sensitivity and all these kind of things kind of have really made a huge deal about our feelings and how we feel, Lisa has taken it down under the foundation of all that to say, actually, we're more in charge than we think. And when we understand those mechanisms of action, we can take back not only our emotions, but also how we live and feel about our lives. Welcome Lisa Feldman Barrett, Distinguished Chair of Psychology at Northeastern University, holding appointments at Harvard University and Massachusetts General as well. The author of the global best-selling high-impact book, How Emotions Are Made, and the author of the newly upcoming book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Lisa, welcome to Homegrown Humans.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, um, just, just in getting to review some of your work, I'm continually struck by how the combination of iconoclastic and methodical your work is, you know, in reading how emotions are made, you literally go through the field of sort of neuroscience and psychology just Blowing up sacred cows left and right, and and doing it with with evidence, you know, doing with doing it with a considered perspective on, on what you're seeing in the data and what you're seeing, you know, both in the lab and the classroom. Um, so I I know you've you've been doing this for the last several years, unpacking uh, the central thesis of how emotions are made. But talk to us a little bit about how you see emotions, basically, and that notion of constructed emotions, the fact that we don't necessarily just go wandering through life having feelings, that they actually emerge from a complex layer of neurophysiology, energy management, prediction, and a host of other factors. Because you've really, I think, done more than almost anyone I'm aware of, um, an amazing job at unpacking and demystifying our interiority, and, and at the same time holding up real hope and possibility for what we can do with that, that insight.
0: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate those kind words. I guess, you know, um, as a scientist, I'm really uh, compelled by data. And I find it really exciting when experiments and observations challenge deeply held beliefs, even my own deeply held beliefs. Um, And so I would summarize the message of how emotions are made somewhat somewhat like this. Really since the beginning of psychology as a science, so psychology was a field in mental philosophy for hundreds if not thousands of years in Western philosophy, but it became a science in the 19th century when um, scientists and philosophers began using the methods of physiology and uh, neurology to try to find the physical basis of mental life, of the of your thoughts and feelings, and um, and imaginations and memories and actions and so on, and in the 19th century, if you think about what what, what was happening in physiology, you know they would have a muscle cell. That was lying dormant, and they would stimulate it, and it would react. And so the assumption was that this is also how the mind worked and how the brain worked. That um, uh, you know, around the turn of the century, uh, we discovered that uh, the brain was not a solid mass; it was made of little cells that were connected together, called neurons, and that these um, neurons were dormant until you stimulated them. And in fact, in the 1950s, very famous experiments were done where there. You know, neuroscientists would take a um, a giant um, squid neuron, which is actually large enough to see with a naked eye, and it lies, when you disconnect it from the rest of the animal, it just lies dormant until you stimulate it. And then the um, the cell fires and you see an electrical charge run down the long tail of the neuron called an axon. And so this is the assumption of how the mind worked and how the brain worked. And it really is our it it fits with our intuitions about how emotions, how we see, how we hear um, that, you know, our eyes are a window on the world, that we um, just take in the information that's there, that we do this with our ears and our nose and so on. And that emotions work somewhat the same way um, that uh, the idea was that we must have little circuits in our brain, one for anger, one for sadness, one for fear, they lie dormant until stimulated by something in the world. So you see a snake or someone scowls at you, um, one of your, uh, you know, neuron, your circuits triggers, and then this causes you to have a feeling um, and uh, maybe to react in a particular way, causing you to do and say things that you yourself might um, regret later, right? Right. This is this is the basis of um, this is still actually this model of the mind is still the basis of most of in most Western legal um, legal uh, systems uh, um, and um, and in economics and so on. The idea is that, you know, the rational part of your mind evolved uh, to control this sort of inner beast that you have, which is constantly reacting to things all the time.
2: The problem so that, that's that's the sort of St. Augustine, right? I mean, we sort of have yeah. our better oh, angels yes. and our. Oh, yeah. baser right. natures. So
0: and- actually, you know the whole idea that you have a lizard lurking inside a lizard brain somewhere lurking inside your brain and that your ra- your very human rational brain will um, clamp down on this lizard, this inner beast, um, and prevent it from uh, from causing you to do all kinds of uh, regrettable things. This is an idea that really goes all the way back to Plato. You can trace the roots of this all the way back to Plato and his, um, you know, uh, horses and the charioteer metaphor that he used to describe the human psyche. Um, It's almost as if, you know, neuroscientists in the 20th century took Plato and kind of tattooed it onto the brain (laughs) to Plato's metaphor and tattooed it onto the brain. And, um, and I talk about this in seven in seven and a half lessons a little bit. The thing is
2: that. Well, and, and just just to to clarify, for folks. So, didn't didn't both Carl Sagan and Dan Siegel both kind of pick up that story of the triune brain, the the lizard brain, the limbic brain, the
0: executive oh, functioning, yes.
2: cortical brain.
0: Oh yes, exactly. So um, so the idea that you have a a brain that evolved kind of like sedimentary rock or like, I like to think of it as, um, you know, the birthday cake uh, metaphor of the brain, you know, you, you have layers and then, uh, you know, the last layer, the icing is laid over the, you know, the rational part is laid over like of the already baked cake, right? So you've got this, li- really this lizard brain, which um, is supposedly for instincts, and then a limbic system, which is supposedly for, which in ma- evolved in mammals, um, which is supposedly for emotion, and um, and then you've got this rational uh, neocortex, which evolved, um, and you know at its pinnacle in humans. Um, the irony, though, is that by the time Carl Sagan wrote about the triune brain in the 1970s in a book that won you know a pulitzer prize the dragons of eden neuroscientists already knew uh at that point that that model was incorrect and um uh and the the way that they know is uh because they have methods for peering into the internal workings of cells and looking at the molecular genetics the uh the the molecular structure of cells and they can trace the evolution of the brain um, uh, using these molecular methods. So when you just look at, at different animals and you look at their brains with the naked eye, it looks like a lizard doesn't have a cortex. It looks a cerebral cortex. It looks like um, uh, you know, a bird doesn't have a cerebral cortex. Uh, but they have neurons that or they have neurons that are identical to the neurons that we have. Uh, our neurons array themselves in a in a cortex-like shape. Theirs don't, but the neurons are identical. Actually, they just um, are. They're just array themselves in a slightly different form. And in fact, research now shows that for every mammal I think who's ever been studied, so I think it's like 18 or 19 mammals now, um, uh, we know that all of the developmental stages in brain development are identical across all the mammals who've ever been studied. I think that scientists have studied something like 200 and I can't remember exactly how many, more than 200 stages. And they're in, they brains basically build themselves from an embryo in exactly the same way in all mammals who've ever been studied and probably also in most vertebrates who have a jaw, um, if you believe the, molecular, the, the sort of uh, traces of evidence from molecular genetics. And what this, what neuroscience brings us to is a very different way of how brains work and how your brain really is constructing all of your experience, including what you see and what you hear and what you feel in a way that is very, very different from the way that we experience it, right? So our experience is not a good guide of actually what our brains are doing you know brains are kind of tricky little creep, you can think of them as sort of tricky um tricky organs you know they um they create experience and they do it in a way that um that uh makes it seem uh like the products actually reveal what's happening but they don't
2: because so, yeah. okay, so, 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 so just, just one sec. So so because I'm so we're about to jump into this and this is like the absolute heart of it. And I help me understand. So you, you basically said, hey, that idea of the birthday cake model, the idea that we have this primitive lizard brain and then a limbic brain and then and then a sort of cortical functional executive conscious brain, that idea is bunk. <laughs> it was popularized by several very compelling writers. It's sort of been a persistent myth that's never gone quite away entirely. In fact you still see it all over the place. Oh yeah, especially um, in,
0: you know, very expensive uh, you know, executive training programs and so on. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I and I even wonder it's sort of it's is it is that is this is that the same I don't know what, I would say almost sort of philosophical DNA as the, there's the Jennifer Aniston region or the God region of the brain. As we get into neuroimaging, is that similar, that kind of mechanistic, a location for a thing, an emotion or a sensation?
0: Absolutely, absolutely, that's exactly right. And I should point out, uh, you know, um, I mean, a given neuron doesn't do everything, but it can do more than one thing. And it does more than one thing on a fairly regular basis. And, um, you know, uh, there really are very few parts of the brain where you can say, you can specify what a area's re- function is biologically, but not psychologically. The psychological phenomena that we experience, even our actions, are really whole brain events. Um, it's really, and you know, if we were having a methods talk, I could explain to you why it looks like there's an island of activity in one part of the brain that's responsible for seeing or hearing or anger or, you know, perceiving Jennifer Aniston. But, uh, but, uh, but it's really, um, it's really a combination of scientists designing studies, that are consistent with their assumptions and then finding evidence that's consistent with their assumptions.
2: And, and and the available tools, right? I mean, everybody thinks that MRIs are some sort of, you know, god x-ray and it's, it's a lot of it's just blood flow and like what's happening in different yeah. parts and, and, and correlating blood flow with the activity that we think we're measuring, is that right?
0: Well, yes and no. So I will say that um, there are different kinds of methods of brain brain imaging, of neural imaging. And what you're referring to is functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI. And fMRI um, is measuring changes in blood flow, which have been shown to be uh, related to neural firing. But that relationship is very complicated. And, um, And when I say complicated, I mean, you know, in our lab, we now are looking at cellular respiration, which is how neurons utilize glucose. And it turns out neurons utilize glucose, like all other cells in your body in lots of different ways. Well, not lots of different ways, but at least two different ways. And what neural firing means, depending on, it really depends on, uh, and what bold signal means really depends on how, uh, neurons are achieving that goal. But, um, so not all bold signal means the same thing, I think, is the main point here. But but th- that's sort of a technical point, which eventually will make its way into the literature and then, you know, someday into popular culture. I think the thing for us to remember is that the brain images that you see are curated images. They're images of an indirect measure, blood flow, an indirect measure of neural firing, and scientists have done all kinds of things to that signal uh, in order to give you that beautiful colored image. Um, And so, for example, if you believe that there's a part of your brain called the, you've taken me now on a very different direction than answering your original question, but it's an interesting point, I think. And that is, if you look at how people talk about the brain, they'll talk about the visual system or visual cortex, right? This is the part at the back of the brain, the occipital cortex, occipital lobe of your cortex, where information from your retina makes its way here. And if you do um, uh, a brain imaging study um, uh, that is, you know, mainly focused on vision, doesn't test any other uh, modalities like hearing or touching, say, and you you use um, you know, when you're doing brain scanning, somebody's head is stuck in a kind of a claustrophobic, like very small kind of tunnel. <laughs> you don't want to keep them there too long, right? So With maybe,
2: hammers banging away at you. Know,
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So maybe you keep them there for an hour, and so maybe that gives you, you know, some, you know, we usually think about, um, we present, you know, images to people and they somehow respond. And so we call that a trial. And so maybe you have like 50 trials in an hour or something like that. But what if you bring people back four or five times and scan them? So instead of having 40 or 50 trials, you've got 400, 500, or, you know, like 250 to 400 trials, something like that, really, you're densely sampling that person. And what if you, um, on some of those um, scans you give them visual input like images and then in others you give them sounds and in others you give them tactile stimulus like you're touching their skin. What you can find is that visual cortex routinely actually is also, those neurons actually also code for touch and they also code for vision, I mean hearing. And actually if I were to blindfold you within about an hour your visual cortex would start; um, the neurons would start um, robustly firing to touch and hearing within an hour. Not because. So is, is that, that
2: in- is is that kind of a build on Bucky Rita's work at at Madison, and then even David Eagleman's stuff on the sort of Mr. Potato Head theory of.
0: Yeah, exactly. Actually, David has a really nice book out that just came out called Live Wired, which just reviews a lot of this work. And I review some of it and how emotions are made because it's, it's relevant to understanding the nature of emotion. The point is that when you see something, it's a whole brain event. There are some neurons that are focally important, and then the rest of them are kind of like helpers. When you are hearing, it's a whole brain event. There are some neurons that are focally important to hearing, um, but then there are a whole bunch of helpers. So you can think about visual neurons as helping the um, auditory part. They're part of the auditory system, but they're helper neurons. And um, the same thing is true for emotion. It's not that you have circuits for emotion in some lizard part of your brain. You have circuits for breathing, And uh, for your heart, you know, to control your heart and to control your muscles. And those things change in episodes of emotion, but they also change in episodes that are not emotional. Otherwise, you'd be dead. So, when you have anger, an instance of anger or fear or sadness, it's a whole brain event. There are some core neurons, and then there are some helper neurons. And uh, to make things more complicated, uh, this There's something, uh, a principle in the brain like uh, that's in all biological systems, which is that when something's like really important function, you don't leave it to one set of neurons because if they get mm-hmm. damaged, you're screwed.
2: Yeah, you need sort of redundancy and adaptability. Yeah?
0: Yes, but what uh, redundancy just means that the same um, the same uh, causes are repeated over and over as opposed to something called degeneracy, which is a horrible name. But what it means <laughs> is that- it does, it
2: does have certain connotations, you know?
0: It does, uh, I did not coin it. But um, there's a wonderful paper that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy in 2001 by uh, Gerald Edelman and um, Galley, I don't remember the first name, his first name, on degeneracy. Um, and what this means is that basically there are many ways to skin a cat. You have every biological system that's really ever been studied has multiple ways to um, make the same function. Genes work this way. Your immune system works this way. And um, so does your brain. You can think of it kind of like the London tube, right? You, there are, there aren't redundant paths to get from, you know, point A to point B. There are degenerate paths. If one path fails, you have lots of other paths Right. So redundancy would be you can drive from point A to point B in the same path. You can walk that path. You can take the tube in that path. Degeneracy is there are different paths that you can take. And um, that's what preserves function. And it also helps for the evolvability of a species. But that's a whole other conversation. Degeneracy is, degeneracy is a good thing. Evolution likes it. Natural selection. um, um usually selects for it 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 helps the robustness of a species to not um go extinct and it also helps the robustness of a of a human to not die
2: yeah well, well and, and before we're done um myth busting which which i which i absolutely love and deeply appreciate because to get to actually ask someone who who has the subject matter and the perspective to give thoughtful answers I, I find it invaluable um so the other two that come to mind is i do you, um i forget who it is it was a professor back in the 70s at princeton who came up with that idea of the bicameral mind so you, you know you're, you're throwing back to plato made me think of it but that idea that back in the day before our before our executive function knit together we would hear voices we that, that was the realm of the gods that kind of explains the persistent mythologies around the world of before the fall we were at one with nature we communicated with the spiritual realms etc and then it all got stitched together again that you know that went that that got you know shot to ribbons in the academic sphere but lived you know lived long in people's imaginations and popular culture and then ian mcgillchrist's um recent idea of like the master and his emissary where again he breaks the brain basically into the classic kind of left brain right brain idea and sort of says there's the master <laughs> you know of the left brain and there's the emissary and then and he kind of does an historical analysis of different people different movements and which which were driven by what and, and what i find is often that gifted thoughtful people will often have really useful insights about the human condition, whether that's William James, Sigmund Freud, you name it, these guys, Um, but that in their search for particularly a mechanistic explanation, that's where they jump the shark. So their insights about human nature may, may be more true than the mechanism of action that they couple it to to make their argument. So just talk a little bit, you know, especially for many, many viewers and listeners who Might have heard these things and might have taken them at face value. What's your understanding of 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 that neck of the woods? On
0: yeah, so I guess I have a lot to say about that, and I guess, but before I do, I just want to also say, I it's not like uh, in my career I went looking to bust myths. I think it's just. (laughs) I think it's just. um, I don't. I really am. Dedicated to understanding what data say, and I'm not convinced by the authority of anyone's opinion. I guess that would be the way to say it. So, in my view, no one's opinion, not even mine, um, is uh, is uh, untouchable. Not even Darwin. You know, no one, no one. Mm-hmm.
2: Because although, data- although to to your credit, you're not a you're not a rebel outsider looking in. I did just recently note that you were among the top one percent cited academics in peer-reviewed papers, which is astonishing. That's amazing. I'm
0: I'm not, yeah, I was, I found it astonishing too, actually. I was like, are you really sure? I don't, okay. Um, I mean, I'm not actually, I'm not, I'm not looking to destroy anything. Um, I actually think that, you know, there are people who are, are, are kind of contrarian just by nature. And I think it's okay to, to do that as long as you also contribute to building something, you know, like you can't tear something down and then not have any insights to put in his in place. And so to get to your point about James and Freud and so on, I'll give you one example of Freud that I think um, is, is a perfect example of what you said, um, which is um, Freud had many insights about phenomena that were important. So Freud was one of these people, like James and and others, who they observe things that are important that other people just gloss over and really miss, right, that in in day-to-day life there are many, many things that can demand your attention. And so here's one that I found really interesting about Freud, you know, so Freud, his his explanation for this was completely wrong, but the phenomenon is interesting, and that's the following. you know, he came up with this idea of psychosexual stages for where you derive pleasure um, in in um, depends on your developmental stage. And so babies have an oral stage where they derive pleasure through putting things in their mouth. and um and then toddlers have pleasure derive pleasure from um, going to the bathroom because they uh, that's the, the um, because bowel movements are are pleasurable. And um, and then, you know, he sort of moved things along and, you know, he chose um, uh, bowel movements for toddlers because one of the things that toddlers have to do is learn to control their bodies in line with um, expectations for voiding in a culture. Well, it turns out that your gut, we now know, um, is one of the body's major sources of serotonin in in, actually that your brain uses. Most of the serotonin in your body, your serotonin is a chemical, which is important. Um, it's a metabolic uh, regulator. It's also the, the neurochemical that is, um, that is most often tweaked in, um, pills for in medication for depression. So Ser- ser- and
2: in the entire psychedelic renaissance, I mean, the 5 HT T2A receptor site. But the point is it. that
0: yeah. where does most of that serotonin come from? Some of it's made in your brain, but most of it's made in your gut. It's made actually in your gut, and, um, and your gut is a major regulator of your brain through serotonin and other
2: means. And when you... Now, now, now are, you, are you saying that there's now, because last time I checked that, that was that observation of gut serotonin, but it hadn't been decisively proven that that was in fact addressing or fueling serotonin supplies in the brain. And you're actually saying they are connected.
0: I'm saying they are connected. I don't think people know exactly all of the, um, all of the, um, I don't think all the, I know all of the mechanisms are not worked out. Um, but your, but your gut is, we're used to think of, we we usually, you know, there are three kind of organs in um that you can think of them as kind of battling for control of you your brain your gut and your heart you know your gut and your heart have their own oscillations if you remove them from your body and you give them enough energy they can continue to oscillate on their own Um, whereas something like your lungs or your liver would just stop working if it was disconnected to you and so we usually think of the brain as in training the heart and in training the gut But now it looks like there's it's actually more like a two-way conversation, uh, or maybe a three-way conversation. And the gut turns out to be really, really important for um, for example, immune cells in the um in the gut um signal uh up to the brain by a, a pathway called the vagus. So there, there's a lot going on actually in your gut that's regulating your brain. And I guess my point is that when you have a bowel movement and you void, when it feels like a relief and comfortable, it's because there's a flood of serotonin. So Freud didn't have the mechanism right. And, but he noticed something that most people don't don't notice, or if they do, they don't want to talk about it. And it's kind of cool because you know, fast forward a hundred years and now we have, we, we understand, we don't understand everything that's going on, but we actually understand that there's a mystery there that is really, probably really, really important to understanding energy regulation and mood um, and several disorders like Parkinson's disease, for example, begins now scientists think in your gut and, mm. um, and in fact there's
2: a, there's a Princeton gastroenterologist that even calls that that feeling poo <laughs> You know, the idea of the sort of the goose pumps, the drop in blood pressure, that the feelings of you know the feelings of relaxation or, or peak experience. And you're saying that that is coming from a boost in vagal nerve tone and a and, and you, where is the serotonin going in in the gut? Is it is it release and a priming and then getting taken up in the bloodstream? What's what's happening?
0: It's actually, I think that the idea is that there's, well, certainly some things are being taken up in the bloodstream, but there's also signaling up the vagus nerve. Um, so the vagus nerve is this big nerve bundle that brings sense sense data from your body to your brain, and it's carrying some of this uh, information. So to your point, um, you know, so the first point that you made, I think is absolutely right. It's important to distinguish between someone's observation and their explanation for that observation. Sometimes the observations are very very useful even if their explanations are are wrong. And as far as, you know, breaking the brain into parts and saying, you know, who's the who's the boss, I I think people do that based on what they value or what they're interested in. If you you read the literature on, on uh, people who study vision; they'll tell you the visual system is, uh, you know, the thing that's running the brain. And if you read people who study emotion, they'll they'll tell you that those, you know, mythical little uh, uh, circuits uh, for emotion are that's what's running the brain. And if you read people who study motor behavior, they'll tell you that's what's running the brain. I I think that the point is the brain is a complex system. And uh, you can, uh, depending on what you're interested in, you can s- start there and see how, what you're interested in affects everything else in the brain, but the fact is, it's a big system.
2: Com- com- and- complex, adaptive, and sort of, basically, it's, I mean, if you could sum it all up, it's like, we're complicated and it depends. <laughs> um, and and Pretty so, much. so a qu-
0: but, Yeah, but getting under the hood and trying to put some some scientific teeth to that is is what's really interesting, right?
2: Well, well let, let's do that. And, and just for you know, for, for folks watching know we're coming in the side door of Lisa's much bigger overarching theory of constructed emotion. And we've just kind of jumped in to start talking about the different parts of bodies and brains that provide the data inputs and the sense making that then boils up to some of the levels of emotion. So we'll, we'll come to that. But I, I think you highlighted something that intrigues me, which is you said, hey, there's effectively three parts our brain our heart and our guts and that they are in connection coordination and communication and that that is really providing i don't know what you would call it but the sort of you know grand central the 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 control system for the rest of our experience you mentioned the vagal nerve and lately i've been doing some research on the endocannabinoid system and it feels to me that there's a stunning amount of overlap between what the, you know, and, and, it, and it's responsibility for everything from inflammation to right. live and well, mouth, it's bilateral right, signaling right, system. Right. Well, right. What, yep. what happens, yep. do you have a relationship between the endocannabinoid system and the vagal nerve? Because they sure seem like they provide a, a biological regulation, like it's, it's not thermoregulation, but it's almost sort of like dynamic regulation of our whole system. And I've never heard anybody provide an integrated model of the two of them and how they work together.
0: So I guess what I would say, I would, to answer your question, I'd like to take a step back and say, listen, you know, just in the same way that there is no single part of the brain that gets dedicated to any psychological function, there's also no single neurochemical system which is devoted to any, any, um, they have biological functions, but they don't have any specific psychological function, meaning, um, you know, for example, people talk about dopamine um, being a reward neurotransmitter. It's not a reward neurotransmitter. Actually, dopamine is a, a chemical that's about, you know, more than 500 million years old, and it evolved, and its basic function is as a metabolic regulator. This is also true for serotonin, and my guess is it would be true also for endocannabinoids. Um, so that's the first metabolic thing.
2: Metabolic regulators. And so you're they saying are that the metabolic mood...
0: regulators.
2: So, so, and you said, and basically, you're saying that the mood impact that we often latch onto and identify with is a symptom, not causal, to their function no, in our system.
0: no, what I'm saying is that that um whatever functions that dopamine and and serotonin and endocannabinoids and opioids and so on are playing in your mood, they play that role because they are regulating your metabolism. That's what I'm saying actually. So for example, dopamine does not track the reward history of, it doesn't track the reward history of anything. Dopamine is what is secreted when the brain is preparing to expend effort to get a reward. It's the effort that dopamine is needed for. If you're going to, if you think about what are the two most expensive things your brain can do, it's move your body and learn something new. And so you get dopamine, you get a dopamine rush when um, your brain is preparing you to either move or learn. That requires effort, meaning you have to spend some glucose and other resources to get those things. That's what dopamine is doing, people think. And serotonin, for example, people think um, the best guess right now is that it's um, uh, it's allowing you to spend uh, when there's no immediate reward. So you can you can like explore, you can right. it's sort of, it's, it's, it's tracking your reward history so that it knows how much you can kind of invest, um, before you need to have another deposit.
2: So, so is this the marshmallow, is this the marshmallow test winners are higher on serotonin than dopamine? I mean, I know, I I know that's massively (laughs) problematic study, but, but talking,
0: we're not talking, no, we're talking at a metabolic level, not really, um, the marshmallow test is a, is, um, I can see how you would ask that because they kind of look Well, in, in the sense of, of is, is, kind of, is do- dopamine no, shorter no, time cycle
2: and serotonin longer time cycle del- delay of gratification.
0: Yes, but um it's not j- but yes, it's not just delay of gratification, but yes, sure. I mean, I'm sure serotonin is involved. I mean, all kinds of neurotransmitters are involved, but my point is that um that and they also they also tend to overlap in neurons. So it's very, very unusual for a given neuron to be, you know, so when a neuron fires um, and uh, there's an electrical charge that that runs down its axon and then there's a release of chemicals um, at the bottom into the space between uh, that neuron and the next neuron and the next neuron, you know, the, the chemicals latch on to the branches of that neuron called dendrites and, that, and that's um, how we, uh, that's how neural transmission happens. It's very rare for uh, a synapse to have, but that's the space between two neurons, to only um, involve one neurotransmitter. So people study. So what you're asking me about the vagus, and and you're asking me, you know, do endocannabinoids um, have a a role to play in the vagus? I should just say up front, I am not an expert on endocannabinoids. So, um, but what I would what I would imagine is that it works the way it works for all the other neurotransmitters, which is you really can't think about one without considering what the other ones are doing. So for example, the whole literature, there's a wonderful paper on, um, by, um, Howard Fields, who is a a neuroscientist. And, um, in, um, 2015, I think, uh, in trends in neuroscience, uh, where he talks about the history of research on dopamine. And he shows that Actually, the rewarding properties of dopamine probably come from opioids.
2: Yes. Okay, so so I was just reading a study, and (laughs) I I don't know whether it's the same one.
0: One is (laughs) modulating the other, just like serotonin modulates dopamine.
2: Yeah, because the study I read was the idea they were imaging people. They were injecting a painful solution into their jaw, and they were first tracking the release of of endorphins to, to modulate and buffer the pain, and then dopamine was coming in through the same... Circuit or system, and right? So, so, so that and that was the idea the, of how pleasure pain gets. Yeah. Crossword. So
0: the really important thing is that there you can think about synapses as spaces for very complicated cocktails of ke- of, ke- of neurochemicals. And so if you mm-hmm. tweak one neurochemical, you're probably tweaking the others too, indirectly.
2: Yeah. It's almost always a cascade. Not now. You said something complex which complex system.
0: Complex system.
2: <laughs> complex system. Yeah. Um, so. You, you, there's a, almost a, a post hoc, propter hoc question with your, with what you said about dopamine and serotonin. Cause what I, if I heard you right, you were saying dopamine gets released in order to provide addition, oomph, encouragement, a nudge to move the body or to seek novelty and learn something. And I always thought that it was effectively the cherry on top reward, whether that's orgasm or it's as a hunter gatherer finding the red berry, you eat it, you pop it in it, and then you get your dopamine hit. So yeah, help us help me understand the actually, chain of causation.
0: That's actually, not, that's actually I think not correct. You okay. you you see an increase in dopamine um, when there's something unexpected happens, um, and and why is that? Because when something unexpected happens and your brain takes in that unexpected information, that's called learning. So. Get, you know, we haven't really talked about the brain, you know, we started to sort of inch up to this idea that the brain is not really reacting to things in the world. It's actually using your past experience to predict. And if you predict wrong, there's an opportunity to learn. And so you will see an increase in dopamine in certain cases, when the brain is attempting to learn. Remember, it's expensive to learn. So you need um, an up regulation in metabolism locally in certain parts of the brain in order to learn so that's but, what it, you but see it's ahead
2: movement. of it's ahead of success is that right?
0: Well it de- it's complicated it depends first of all, it depends on where you're looking. so mm-hmm. dopamine isn't in one place, it's in multiple places so it depends on where you're looking and it also depends on how you... Um, yeah, it dep- it, I don't think there's a global answer to that question. Well,
2: I, I mean, I mean on, on Freud's notion, right? That idea of he had some insights, but he might've had his mechanisms wrong. I think A.A. Mellon with Winnie the Pooh, right? I mean, it brings to mind that idea where Winnie the Pooh is like, you know, I think it's the moment right before you have the honey that's even better than the moment you actually get to have the honey. You know, well, so he's talking about yeah, anticipatory I mean, reward.
0: Well, what you're saying there, I mean, I wanted to get back to the endocannabinoid thing because I, I just, but I now, I just wanted to say that, you know, like a lot of things that we think of as having to do with endorphins and pleasure actually have to do with endocannabinoids. So the runner's high that you get, you know, I don't know that other people get. I, I've been running for years. I think I've had a runner's high once in my life. Like I just don't get runner's high. Mostly what I get is like just a feeling of very being very proud of myself that I slogged through yet another run. But, um, but that runner's high is not endorphins. It's actually endocannabinoids that's giving you that pleasure. But um, to get to your point about a melm yeah. So here's the thing: the way your brain actually works, the way all brains work, as far as we can tell, is that they begin to prepare neurally, prepare an exp- your experience before it 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 actually ha it ac- you actually experience it, and when um. So the anticipation that that you feel, um, the pleasure that you feel in anticipation is is really your brain preparing you for an expected reward. And actually, if you look at um, many disorders, you can see that some of them have, um, they don't have, people don't have problems in what's called consumptive reward which is when the reward is delivered they can feel pleasure it's in the anticipation of it they don't they don't anticipate it they can feel it they can feel pleasure when the reward happens but they don't anti- they don't have anticipatory pleasure
2: who is that a, is that people with addictions or other who, who, depression what, what group, um,
0: okay. ex- um uh schizophrenia there's a literature by um Ann Kring, uh, the psychologist Ann Kring, who studies what's called um, anticipatory pleasure versus consumatory pleasure. And so people who have anhedonia in depression, so they what's called the in- inability to feel pleasure, they can perfectly feel pleasure when they actually are delivered a reward. It's just they don't um experience the anticipation. And because they don't experience anticipation, the reward they don't experience pleasure in anticipating, they don't seek rewards because they don't anticipate the pleasure of having one. Similarly, in in Parkinson's disease, people are now thinking that um, the problem in Parkinson's disease is not that there's a, a problem in moving your body. What there is is a problem in the motivation to move your body so you know if you take someone who has Parkinson's disease and you stick them in a burning house and they need to save a loved one, they can do that perfectly fine and and very very effectively
2: problem- with, with no tremors with no lack no, of muscle coordination no yeah
0: wow. but but so the idea is that they have um, they have a we would call a problem with motivation to move or which is very very similar to this there are problems in anticipatory planning and the problems in anticipatory planning are um are causing the the symptoms really
2: i mean is that is that like an executive motor function override where they get a dump of norepinephrine and cortisol and and it's you know it's an emergent situation and it temporarily dampens down nervous system tremors what is that
0: i think that's a great hypothesis i don't think um it's not that that it dampens down the um the the tremors i think the way to think about it is this your brain is a predictive organ it is predicting everything that you do everything that you feel every action that you take every thought that you have arises from prediction and if you So normally the way your brain works is if we were to stop time right now, like just completely stop time, your brain would have some representation of what's going on in your body and what's going on around you in the world. And based on that, it would ask itself, figuratively speaking, the last time I was in this state, In this situation what did I do next what did I see next what did I hear next what did I feel next and it makes it estimates some probabilities and it starts to prepare those actions those um, experiences it starts to prepare them it actually literally starts to change the firing of his own neurons in preparation to receive that input and then it, and when it receives that input, if the input matches what's expected, then the actions are just executed and the experiences are experienced. And if the, there's a, a mismatch, then it has an opportunity t- to learn. So if you have a problem with prediction, then you're not going to have a firm movement. You will have a tremor movement, a movement with tremor. If you have a problem with predicting pleasure, you will not seek reward. If if you have this problem with anticipating things, meaning your brain isn't, it's predictive, the predictive aspects aren't working as well as they used to, then you will, that's one way to think about all of these symptoms. It's one way in which schizophrenia and Depression and Parkinson's disease are in, you can, and autism, you can think of them as similar in that aspects of the predictive machinery is just not working very well.
2: So we're sort of living forwards from behind, right? A- always taking the backlog of information and experience and then predict- projecting it forwards into a provisional roadmap of our adjacent future. Yeah, exactly. Whatever.
0: Your brain is always using your past. To predict your immediate future which becomes your present.
2: So then there was a study at MIT I think where they were talking about cognitive buffering and they were talking about how we basically were not paying actual acute real-time attention and there's a sort of something crazy like a 15 to 30 second blur or blending of data from our sense perception and it, and it and we fill in the blanks the same way we have that gap in our vision but we fill it in cognitively there's that sort of there's a temporal version of that where we're effectively we leave it kind of squishy and not fully determined for plus or minus 15 seconds is that oh does yeah that it's live in this neck of the
0: that. it's actually even shorter than that um, so it turns out that there's research to show <clears throat> and I'm gonna get this wrong because I never can remember it but your heart, your, you know, your heart goes through systole and diastole. So there's a point where your heart's filling up with blood. And then there's a part where your heart, the phase where your heart contracts and squishes out the blood. Right. And my, your, your vision is your sampling of the visual world is actually tied to your heartbeats. So if you, I'm trying to remember, but I think it's that your brain is sampling visual input, during systole, during filling. I can't remember. It's, it's what, for one of them, it's paying attention. And for the other one, it's not sampling. So you, every um, every couple of milliseconds, you know, if you have, if your heart is beating like, you know, 80, let's say 60 beats a minute, um, for every beat, there's part of the time that you're sampling visually and part of the time that that your brain is filling in. And that's happening that's happening all the time throughout your whole life. So when your heart is racing, um, you're,
2: you know, Does your sample rate, your your frame rate goes up?
0: Yeah, your sampling rate goes up. And if your heart rate goes too high, you'll stop really, your actions will be guided by um, the filling in, what we call the internal model it'll be guided by your beliefs and less by actually what's going on in the world. So here's a, here's a, here's a thought, right? I saw a presentation, um, that had, um, uh, was using, um, physiological tracking of police officers in training, um, for, um, uh, while they're training for maneuvers for, um, uh, Uh, what that they would use out in the real world and when police in training when police officers believe that they are tracking an assailant their heart rate is up around 170 180 beats a minute even though you can't you you can't look at them and know that but that is actually what's happening under the hood and so in those moments the hypothesis would be that their actions are being guided largely by their prior beliefs and not so much by what um, it is going on actually in the world at that moment because they're not their brains probably aren't sampling as it can't sample that fast.
2: Okay, so great. And so so, so we'll go ahead and finish that.
0: I was gonna say, so when you um when you hear one of these news stories and you you think well what the hell was that police officer doing like why weren't they paying attention to this obvious thing that's right in front of their eyes the answer might be well that person's heart rate might have been so high at that point that they stopped their brain stopped you know sufficiently sampling and they might not actually have even seen what you are seeing in uh, because your heart rate is probably sitting at around 70 or 80 beats a minute when you're watching
2: Okay, perfect. So this is the moment where a pop science commentator would say something like they were in an amygdala hijack or yeah. they had their limbic system override their executive function. So let's just stop the tape right here and, and disabuse us of those misconceptions. So so right. you, are you basically saying that there's a complex dynamic system, sampling rates, frame rates, neurophysiology affecting affect, all of those kinds of things, and that it's, it's a full stack decompensation from effective prediction, not a turning off of one zone or region and an, and a hijacking of another to the exclusion of the whole system's functioning?
0: Yes, yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, what helps your brain, or what parts of your brain actually decide that, um, well, we're gonna go with this prediction instead of this prediction. We're gonna execute this action instead of this action. Um, that's your what's called the um, central executive uh, part, a system in your brain, or it's sometimes called the frontoparietal control network. Basically, it's um, a bunch of regions working together. So, how does your brain decide? I'm going to draw my gun and shoot versus I'm going to step back and take a breath. How does your brain decide between? two actions that it could predict, right, that are of equivalent probability of success or, you know, it's not usually picking between just two. It's probably picking between many. Well, there's a system in your brain that helps to make that decision. um, And uh, it is at the front. It's at the, relatively speaking, at the front of your brain. It's not just in your cerebral cortex. It's actually has all sorts of sub- Cortical components too. Um, And it's not clamping down on your subcortical areas. It can upregulate them, it can downregulate them, um, and it's always running all the time, not just when you do the marshmallow test, not just when your brain has to make a, a decision in a heated moment. It's always running all the time. Even when you're asleep, it's running because it's tuning out the rest of the world so that you can actually um, change your conscious so that your brain can change its its state of consciousness and the amygdala is um the amygdala has first of all it's a little hard to talk about the amygdala as a single unit because it's actually lots of little clumps of cells which do slightly different things but if we were going to talk about it as a unit we would say its job is not to, um, act to, to cause fear. Its job is not to cause you to feel unpleasant. Its job is basically to, it's like a sentinel in your brain and it tells the rest of the brain, Hey, there's something I haven't predicted here. There's something that we don't know what this is and we have to learn about it. And so, um, we have to, um, yes, yeah, so we have to learn. And so, what it's doing basically, so people who study attention think that the amygdala is attentional structure. People who study emotion think it's think it's an emotional structure. People who who study memory think it's a, a a structure that's important for memory. I mean, basically, the amygdala is is basically telling the rest of the brain. We can't predict what this what, what, what's gonna happen next, or we've encountered something and it's novel and we don't know what it is, so we have to learn. And so it basically increases norepinephrine, it increases like all the systems that will allow your brain to take in new information and learn it. It also regulates your body. So it will increase your heart rate or decrease your heart rate, it will increase, uh, it will help to um, release cortisol, not because you're stressed, but because cortisol is not a stress hormone. Cortisol, again, it is a hormone that is secreted in stress, but it's also secreted when you wake up in the morning. It's also secreted when you exercise. Cortisol is a hormone that your brain um, causes it, it, it sort of turns up or down the dial on on release. And it increases the release when it when it's preparing you. For a large metabolic outlay. Cortisol is one of the chemicals that gets glucose into your bloodstream fast so that your cells can use it. Mm-hmm. So if you're
2: in, in a healthy, in healthy functioning versus perpetual, healthy functioning. perpetual chronic stress or something. So what's happening when I'm stuck in rush hour, rehashing that conversation with my boss or staying awake staring at the ceiling at 3 AM? jacked up and 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 wired is that a dysfunctional modern expression of excess cortisol what what's happening there with chronic and persistent stress no i don't stress think, so. Versus periodic? I think that,
0: yeah so here's how i would say it i would say cortisol is a normal mechanism that whenever your brain believes that you have a big metabolic expenditure it's going to release cortisol have your adrenal glands release cortisol to get glucose to your cells quickly, and that happens all the time throughout your whole life, it's happening. There's ebbs and flows, right? And it's not like cortisol isn't circulating at times that aren't really stressful because you would be dead if that were the case. So you you always need, your cells always need glucose, it's just sometimes they need more. What, what stress is, is uh, what we call, you know, sort of toxic stress or chronic stress. Is that your brain believes that there's a ba- there's a big metabolic outlay that's needed, and it isn't, and so it you get that flush of glucose when you don't need it, and if that happens over and over and over again, your brain believes that your um that you have this big big uh, expensive thing you need to do, and you don't actually need to do it, and you don't do it then eventually cells become insensitive to cortisol. Hmm. The cortisol loses its ability to do what it needs to do. And is, is that what it people also,
2: would colloquially call adrenal fatigue?
0: Yes. And mm-hmm. it's also what, and it also affects your immune system. And, um, so, I mean, there are these cascading effects in other systems as well. So, um, I guess the thing to say is that um, what chronic stress is essentially is a slow bankrupting of your um, of your metabolic resources. Basically, um, your uh, uh, your brain it, you can it's not really a a, a disease of, it's not really a disorder of cortisol. It's a disorder of your brain. Your brain believes something that isn't true, and it's preparing you to act in a way that isn't a good fit to what's going on around you. And that's the problem actually.
2: Hmm. Okay, so so you've done a beautiful job for us kind of decoupling, um, you know, a known neurochemical with a given emotion or outcome. You're sort of showing us, you know, walking us through how the, the systems are complex and interdependent. A lot of it is kind of bottoms up versus tops down in the sense that it's coming up from our physiology into energy management and prediction systems that that's often a... More central function. Uh,
0: I think you know. I, ha- I think you have to really be careful um, when you use words like bottom up and top down, because bottom up and top down means bottom up usually means information from the periphery, from the body or from the world. The brain is a top down organ. It's it builds an internal model of your world and your body in the world, and it runs that model and it's always checking that model against. The information that it gets from the body and the world but and your brain cares very much about your body right because it, it really it evolved largely i mean we should always avoid you know making teleological statements but you know basically your brain's most important job is running your body and everything else it does thinking seeing feeling it does in the service of regulating your body so your brain is a very top-down organ it just cares a lot about the sense data from the body.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay so we, I think we, we had we were using the same directions and implying different things so yeah, exactly. for you for you your top was the brain for me top yeah. was self aware self aware consciousness in real time and mean, meaning that like me being able to notice and name things was my top versus the bottom of, of physiological process um so I think I think those reconcile um if if what I heard no, you No I think
0: they absolutely reconcile it's just in one literature, top means consciousness and bottom means biology, and in another literature, top means the brain and bottom means anything outside the skull. Sense data from the world, sense data from the body, and then you know it's that's why there's this confusion in the literature. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So 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 that and that brings to mind. I I remember reading there was a paper a couple of years ago, but it was somebody, and and I, I'm curious as to how this tracks with your own thinking. But basically saying. That that Freudian notion of we're conscious, and then we have repressed and buried feelings and thoughts that we don't admit to anyone, and that that's our subconscious, and that our subconscious is basically, if I lie on the couch and talk to somebody long enough who's smart enough, then they will pull out from my subconscious all of these buried thoughts and feelings. and And the paper was arguing that that's, uh, like a very romanticized notion of what lies below conscious awareness. There's not sort of hidden thoughts I have but won't admit to myself or don't know how to access. It's all of what you've been describing of interception. It's a it's a bunch of different things: sense signals, data input, reactions, predictions. But it's not a bunch of thoughts I would have had but didn't let see the light of day. Does does that track with your understanding? Because I mean, that's a Absolute. major that's a Absolute. major disassembling. I would say 20th century Western psychology.
0: Absolutely. I mean, here's the thing. Your brain does not store memories. Memories are not fully formed like files in file drawers and your brain just plucks one out. Your brain, memories are reconstructed. They are re-implemented in the conversation between neurons. And so every time you have a memory, your brain is constructing it anew um, from uh, a dynamic conversation between neurons that are being tuned by chemicals, Yeah. right? So um, the idea that you have subconscious or unconscious thoughts or feelings or is not, it doesn't comport very well with what we understand the brain to be doing. There are many things that are occurring and you're completely unaware of them like are you aware right now of how your liver is functioning probably not and are you aware of like of your gut continuing to oscillate and contract and expand are you aware of your lungs probably not you're probably not aware of any of those things and but if you were where would you feel them well you wouldn't be feeling them in your body everything we feel is we feel in our brains Okay, you see in your brain, you don't see in your eyes, you see in your brain, if you pinch your skin, you feel that pinch in your brain, everything you experience is in your brain. And you're not experiencing a lot of things, you're not aware or have conscious access to almost all of the sensations coming from your body. And you um, from the sense data from your body. And you're not aware a lot of the time of your control network doing its thing. Sometimes you are. But not always. In fact, most times not. And so prediction, you're also not aware of your brain constructing a selection of predictions. They're like partial plans for action, partial plans for experience. Your brain has to choose, uh, you know, like basically, it's not really that your brain is choosing, your brain is helping to choose and then the incoming input from the world and the body are also helping to to choose which one gets completed and executed, but it's not like somewhere in your brain you have thoughts and feelings that are lurking under the surface and mm-hmm. that someone can excavate them like an archaeologist. That's really the wrong metaphor, I think.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's and romantic, but it's not true. Yeah. yeah,
2: and and what you were just describing there about we don't have memories and you don't just sort of take them off the shelf and that's what they are. We're constantly reformulating them and they kind of get re-encoded with the available neurochemistry and tagging signals and markers. That sounds like what MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies is doing on those PTSD MDMA trials, where they're basically using a compound to increase oxytocin, vasopressin, serotonin, put people in a saturated state of safety and security and belonging and then deliberately going back and Either doing a fear extinction process or some other form of reformatting of previously traumatic memories. Is that is that the same mechanism Absolutely. of action that you're describing? I think
0: the way to think about it is, um, I heard someone say this morning that um, uh, that we're what the insight that he came to from reading uh, my books um, is uh, that um, we're constantly cultivating our past. And I thought that was a very poetic way to put it, that um, that, you know, everything that you experience um, that you're that you're exposed to has the potential to your brain has the potential to learn it and use it in the future as a prediction. So when we refer to predictions in one literature, what we call predictions Other scientists call simulations or perceptual inferences or even concepts or memory, right? So when your brain is constantly predicting, you don't have the experience of remembering. But what your brain is doing is it's reinstating past events, past experiences to predict what's going to happen next. It's using the past to predict the future. You don't experience those memories, but your brain is remembering, to remember is to reinstate neural patterns from the past. And when you reinstate neural patterns from the past, they're kind of up for grabs again. You can modify them. This was like a huge um, discovery uh, that when you when you reinstate a memory, you, re, you re-implement a memory, so the brain takes on the pattern of, of communication between neurons that occurred originally Um, you have the, uh, it's in an unstable state and you can change it by new learning. You can modify it.
2: Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's fascinating to me uh, to, to understand this, your, your thesis for the constructed theory of emotions and to see, like if someone was just listening to say the first half of this conversation, they might think of you as a, as a quite staunch sort of reductionist, materialist scientist, but then, you know, it's not just, it's not just your colleague who said something poetic about your work. You did. You, you said, you said, you're not at the mercy of emotions that arise unbidden to control your behavior. You are an architect of these experiences. Your river of feelings might feel like it's flowing over you, but actually you're the river's source. And that to me feels profoundly empowering and, and, and really hopeful. Uh, for all of us. And, and, and let's, let's, you know, now kind of change gears and put this into the, in the current moment and the world we're all living in, because obviously at Homegrown Humans, the, the, the inquiry that we're trying to follow from the realm of neuroanthropology to optimal psychology to, you know, cultural analysis is, you know, where have we come from? <laughs> you know, who are we and what do we do now? And so this idea of we're in charge, we're in charge of that river of emotions, that most of those emotions come from us constantly reworking our memories and forever trying to predict more and more accurately what's going to happen next. What are your thoughts on what do we do now in a world where most predictions have just completely come unglued and the intensity and stresses around us, both amygdala, just you know vigilance and threat detection and, and, and predictive mechanisms are in overdrive how do we, you know, that river is threatening to sort of turn into a flood. So what are your thoughts on on, on how, how to manage the world as we're experiencing it right now with so much more novelty, ambiguity, uncertainty um, via taking charge of these rivers that threaten to sweep us away?
0: I wish we could spend the whole time talking about this because there's so much to say. Um, but um, I'll try to, I'll try to summarize really briefly. Um, I have a brilliant postdoctoral fellow who's working in my lab and he just published a paper on what's called the sense of should. And really he's asking the question, why do people follow social norms? Like why do people engage in social norms? Why? Really simple things like why don't you right now? Why are we, you know, we're following social rules. We're, we're, um, engaging in a conversation in a way that is pretty predictable that our brains can predict how this so occasionally we might interrupt each other or um you know my daughter might turn on the vacuum cleaner or you know there might be a siren that goes by And you know there are some unexpected things but from each other we, even though we don't know each other actually very well at all even for someone that you just meet for the first time, there are certain things that are expected or expectable because we're all following a certain set of rules. Why do we follow those rules? We follow those rules because if my behavior is predictable to you, then your behavior will be predictable to me. And the brain likes predictable things because they're less expensive. Remember, if your brain can't predict, your amygdala and, and a whole system in your brain is going to... Um, attempt to learn, and that is one of the most expensive things your brain can do. So what happens when predictability starts to fall apart? What happens when unpredictable things happen? Well at first your brain attempts to learn them, right? Mm -hmm. That's what it's going to attempt to do. Has
2: everybody become an epidemiologist in March?
0: first your brain attempts to learn and um, it will increase, you know, cortisol and increase norepinephrine. And, you know, you, you might feel jittery. You might feel, you know, all of the sort of like higher arousal. I don't mean sexual arousal, but I mean like the jittery sort of feeling when things are uncertain that we construct anxiety out of or, or fear. That's actually you, one way to think about it is, High arousal in the service of learning. your brain's attempting to learn and um, in order to to uh, predict better next time. and but eventually, if things think of it this way, it's like a like a budget, you know, your brain is running a budget for your body. If your brain uh, is continuing to um, uh, make um, expenditures. Um, to try to learn, and it's not receiving any deposits, um, you're going to bankrupt yourself. And if you do that, you're. what do you do when you're running a deficit in your bank account? You stop spending. What does the brain do when it's running a deficit in its body budget? It stops spending. What does stopping spending mean? It means you stop learning. You just go with your internal model. You go with your past experience. You go with your expectations and you don't adjust. You don't learn anything new. And you might also stop moving. You might feel fatigued. You might actually, you might, you know, your brain will stop doing the things that are most expensive. And in the very, very, very extreme case, if stopping learning and locking yourself into your beliefs and not learning from the the things going on around you and not moving very much, if that doesn't actually reduce the deficit, your brain will start to kill its own neurons because they're very, very, very expensive. That's uh, neurodegeneration that happens uh, for a number of reasons, including profound chronic stress. So my point is to you, what do we, one of the things that's happened really in, in right now, what's happening is that there are islands of predictability, right? People who have the same beliefs tend to cluster together and they only talk to the people who have the same beliefs because it's cheaper and it feels more comfortable, It's not as stressful, meaning there's no big metabolic outlay necessarily that's required to talk to somebody who feels the way that you do, who thinks the way that you do. There's no requirement to forage for new information, to learn about a a perspective that's different from yours. Even if you find it abhorrent, you just, there's no, especially when you find it abhorrent, you just won't, you won't even attempt to have uh, a conversation with someone like that because it's a metabolic outlay that maybe you can't afford.
2: That's fascinating, because that sounds like the exact opposite argument that we're hearing these days. In fact, a, a friend of ours, Tristan Harris, just released that documentary, The Social Dilemma, uh, which was which is all about the big tech algorithms and, and the amount of you know basically oh, the I don't algorithms think it's of inconsistent outrage. At all.
0: I don't think it's inconsistent at all. I think that's a I thought first of all, I love that documentary. I I think it's brilliant, actually. Um, I, I and uh, but no, no, it's I think it's very, very consistent because the what's happening in social media is that's described beautifully in that um, in that documentary is aligning perfectly with what's happening under the hood metabolically, I think.
2: Okay. So so, so is, it, is, is it that the 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 stick is the is the outrage that 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 that's that's the sort of. A vigilance response Again, the carrot I is the comfort and predictability of coming, yeah, finding your in-group.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would I try to think, try not to reduce things to a si- simple causes and effects, right? There are many, the situation that we're in has more than one. There are lots of um, what we would say um, weak nonlinear causes. So it's not only social media that the, the social media um, um, building these, you know, serving people up uh, I- information that, uh, you know, based on their, on their own learning history and based on their own, um, you know, y- internet use history, that's part of it. That makes it harder for people to access information that is, you know, novel and different from what they normally would um, expose themselves to. But even in cases where they could, I mean, no one is putting a gun to your head and telling you that you can't read a newspaper. Nobody is telling you that you can't go to the New York Times. You can read the New York Times, not the Wall Street Journal, but there are lots of papers where you can look at the headlines for free. I mean, I guess my point is that, um, that social media, the way it's working, makes things harder to forage for new information. Um, and so that enhances the cost of doing so. So it it alone is not the problem. The metabolic issues are alone not the problem. They're, I mean, but they together they cause a perfect storm.
2: Yeah, back back to it's complicated and depends.
0: But yeah. the thing to do, um, one thing to do is to remember that you are the architect of your experience and you can curate your life. you It's very hard to go back in time and change your past, but you can go forward in time and change your future. If you cultivate different experiences for yourself now, a diversity of experiences now that makes you more flexible and resilient in the future
2: beautiful well that seems like it that seems like, a, that seems like a, a set of wise wise and informed words uh, to conclude with so I, I just would, would love to direct uh, everybody to your seven and a half uh, lessons on the brain, which is coming out this fall in November. Uh, if you want to go back and really take the deep cut uh, in, the, in the more rigorous science, how emotions are made, uh, blew my mind a couple of years ago when I got to read it and it has all kinds of insights. But yeah, so basically everything we thought we knew about ne- the intersection of neuroscience and psychology probably isn't, uh, but what may be more true is more nuanced and fascinating than we might have thought. And, and Lisa, you played a huge role in helping bring that to common consciousness thank you so much for being with us.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for this very, very fun conversation.
1: This episode of Collective Insights was hosted by Jamie Wheel and produced by Jacqueline Loera. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement. And with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition, never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.